0: Morning, everyone. Uh, Thank you so much, Heather, and everyone who's taken part this morning. Heard lots. Uh, But let me ask you a question as as we kind of turn to God's word. And the question is this. How do you cope with opposition? How, How do you cope with opposition? How do you cope whenever you go to do something, start something, begin something, which you think is a right thing to do, a good thing to do, but it's not long before you encounter hassle or you find yourself up against it. How do you deal with that? If you have a Bible, please do turn back to Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to pick up from where we pressed pause two weeks ago, which is at the end of verse 8 of chapter 2. The words will be on the screen in a moment. But two weeks ago, we, we left Nehemiah walking away From a critical conversation with his boss, and he was walking away with a spring in his step and a pile of letters below his arm. King Artaxerxes had just given Nehemiah the green light to go and do something that he had passionately wanted to go and do for months, and that was to return to Jerusalem to help rebuild broken walls and broken lives. the king had granted him his request. But not only that, he had also given Nehemiah those letters that he was to take that would get him through border control. And not only those letters, he had a docket as well that he was going to be able to take to a local timber merchant in order to get him the supplies he needed to rebuild the walls and rebuild the gates plus also kit out his own house during his time in Jerusalem. So all systems were go. Nehemiah's prayers were answered an opportunity was open. But within a very short space of time, we're not entirely sure exactly for how long, but for dramatic effect, let's say it was quickly, okay? But in a very short space of time, opposition arises. Negativity creeps in. And one of the lessons that we learn, or rather discoveries that we make, is that opposition in some form or another, and from some direction or another, is pretty much guaranteed. It's pretty much guaranteed in Christian life and in Christian ministry. Whenever you attempt to do something for God, Do something with God. It's not long before you will encounter opposition. Opportunities come, but so does resistance. So does obstruction. And for some of us here who know our story, that sounds familiar. So let me show you verses 9 and 10 of Nehemiah chapter 2. They say this, so I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And There it is. There's the opposition or the beginning of it. And there they are. There's the opponents, two of them. And we're going to hear more from them and more about them in a moment. But just before we we stand and read the rest of the chapter, let let me say something just based on verse nine. We we didn't read it two weeks ago and I'm kind of just passing it by, but this is just as an, an aside. Here's a big headline. Christians sometimes differ on certain issues. I know that's a shock to some, okay? But Christians sometimes differ on certain issues. Let me explain. You'll notice there from verse nine that the king sent army officers and horsemen to accompany and to protect Nehemiah on his journey. Ezra, who was a contemporary of Nehemiah and another great man of God, well, 13 years earlier, he had been offered a military escort for his journey back to Jerusalem, and he refused it. In fact, he was actually ashamed to take it. As far as Ezra was concerned, he regarded soldiers from the king as a lack of confidence in God's power, whereas Nehemiah took the offer and welcomed their provision as evidence of God's goodness. So, who was right? What was right? Is there a right? Raymond Brown in his his commentary and in his reflections just on this very verse on this issue, writes this, Christians frequently differ on important issues and it is a mark of spiritual maturity if they handle those differences creatively rather than engage in damaging verbal warfare. You see, Ezra and Nehemiah clearly held differing views. You know what? Christians still do. Get over it. That's just an aside, by the way. But let's get back to the story and we're gonna stand for the public reading of God's word. So let's stand together. As I say, the words will be on the screen. Verse 11, I went, this is Nehemiah writing, these are his memoirs. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate. Hmm. Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials, or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work, but... When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us, saying, what is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you will have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Grab a seat. The the journey from Susa to Jerusalem is estimated to have taken about four months, guts of a thousand miles. And whenever Nehemiah arrives, he takes three days, according to verse 11, before beginning to work. Now, whenever Ezra made this same journey, as I said a moment ago, 13 years later, Here's what we read in Ezra 8, verse 32. So, we arrived in Jerusalem where we rested for three days. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but it seems like Nehemiah, 13 years later, grabs hold of Ezra's example and recognizes the value of taking time out especially given that life is about to get incredibly busy and demanding. Nehemiah wanted, if you like, to work from a place of rest, which is a core and clear biblical principle. As I say, I don't want to make too much of this, but maybe for some of us this morning, that's exactly what we need to hear. We need to rest and work from a place of rest. I know our natural reaction is, but but there's so much to do. There's so little time, but you know what? It's probably never going to change. We need time out. Nehemiah needed time, but we need time out. Otherwise, we end up wrecked and exhausted and distracted and ineffective and edgy. And I love the bit in the Gospels, whenever the disciples return from a really busy missions trip, And they came to Jesus, and Jesus knew exactly what they needed, not another mission, not another something to do, but he said this, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Nehemiah takes three days downtime, and then he gets back to the task in hand. And as I say, Some of us maybe this morning just need to be reminded about the importance of rest. We need to take a break for a day or for three. Back to the story, Nehemiah doesn't want to draw too much attention to himself too quickly. You'll notice this. And so under the cover of dark, he waits to nighttime. Under the cover of dark, he takes a nighttime tour of the city and he inspects the walls along with a few others. And it's not long until he discovers that what he had been told months earlier about the state of this city was absolutely true. Broken walls, burnt gates, piles of rubble everywhere. It was heartbreaking. Confirmed his worst fears. But rather than get overwhelmed by what he saw, rather than get intimidated, rather than complain about what he saw, rather than lament... The way things were, Nehemiah is a man of God with a burden and a desire to make a difference. Nehemiah is a man of God with a burden and with a desire to make a difference. He believes, you know, something it doesn't have to be like this. Change is possible. Restoration is possible. And for those who've been tracking this series, you'll know why Nehemiah was able to look through those kind of eyes. It's because he believed, my God is in this. My God is with me. My God is for me. And whenever God is with us, who can be against us? But whenever God is with us, the sky's the limit. The impossible becomes possible. The bleak becomes hopeful. And as we look around us, And as we observe the way things are, and we've already thought about this, but as we look around us today, it's vital that we see beyond the brokenness, past the debris, behind the mess, and we capture something of God's heart for what might be, what could be, in fact, what should be. It's so easy to become negative and skeptical so easy to become apathetic and indifferent or to get overwhelmed and intimidated by the state of things in our community, by the state of things in our world. But rather than focus on what is, let us focus on what could be, or rather let us focus on a God who still loves this world and longs to see it discover renewal and restoration and hope. Nehemiah is confronted, as he takes this nighttime tour, he is confronted with disturbing reality, but he sees an opportunity for restoration. Do we see that? As we look around us, do we have that hope? Do we have that sense of God's heart for this community? Now, up to this point, Nehemiah had more or less carried this all by himself. The burden, even the plans for the rebuilding of the wall. If you look at verses 12 and 16, that makes it really clear. Nehemiah had up to this point been carrying it all himself. But the time has come to invite others to join in, to invite others to work together and become part of the solution. And look at how he does this in verses 17 and 18. Those of you who've got your Bibles open, and I believe there is something in these two verses about what it means and what it looks like for getting others involved and on board with a project. And here's how Nehemiah starts. This is a brilliant model. You want to get others on board and working together on something. Here's a great model. And it starts with Nehemiah being honest. He calls it as it is. You know the full tragedy of our city. It lies in ruins. Or as the message captures it, face it, we're in a bad way here. It's refreshing honesty. Might sound like the words of a pessimist, but Nehemiah is simply being a realist. He's not going to live in denial. He's not going to come out with phrases like, well, it could be worse. No, He calls it as it is. This place is a mess. Things are a mess. The walls, the gates, the people. But he doesn't stop there, which is often where most of it's often where I stop. I look around and and I feel desperate. I feel deflated. But Nehemiah doesn't stop by being honest about the situation. He's not willing to overlook the problem, but neither is he willing to be overwhelmed by it. And so he immediately suggests a solution, and he invites participation. Come, he says. Yes, it's a mess. Come. Let us rebuild the walls. And notice he includes includes himself. He says, come, let us, not you. Come, let us rebuild the walls. He identifies with them. He puts himself in the midst of this mess and he says, come on, let's do something about this. Join me, join in. Thirdly, he offers motivation. Let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Why? Here's the motivation. Rid ourselves of this disgrace or in another translation, so that we will no longer be a reproach. You see, as people in that society looked at the walls and looked at the burnt gates and looked at this disgraced people, they had a laugh. They had a laugh. And it was God's name And it was God's fame that was at stake. It was God's name and it was God's fame that was being dragged through the mud. And for Nehemiah, that was the motivating force and factor for doing something. He could not sit back, stand back, and watch as society looked on and just had a laugh at God's people. And let us be honest. It often feels like society is having a laugh at the state of the church today, and in one sense, who could blame them? But this is a serious matter, not because we or any local church, or other local church are under the spotlight, but ultimately because God's name and God's honor is at stake. Nehemiah is motivated and driven by the honor and worship of God. And you see, as we move forward as a church, And in all of our rebuilding plans, the critical issue to keep front and central is the honor of God's name as we promote and reflect his heart and his character to a watching world and a watching community. That is what has got to motivate us. God's honor. God's name. God's fame. God's worship. God's place. But Nehemiah isn't finished. And trying to get others to come on board with him. Yes, there's this refreshing honesty about the reality of the situation. There's this invitation to participate, to become proactive, to get involved. And there is this motivation. Come on, God's name is at stake here. And then finally, he shares a personal story. Look at verse 18. Then I told him about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. Nehemiah recalls his experience with the people, how God has been with him as he spoke to his boss, how the king had given him permission to be here, given him letters, given him access to supplies, given him an armed escort, etc., etc. You see, the thing about personal story is it inspires. They connect with people. And I don't know about you, but I love hearing people's story. I love to hear what God is doing in and through different individuals and different families. It inspires me. It's great to have been able to hear a little from Jonathan about how God has been leading him and Lindsay and Anya and Lydia. And over lunchtime in number 14, we get to hear a little more of his story and we get the opportunity to join in. Stories connect, they inspire. And so Nehemiah shares his personal story. And as a result, what we discover is after he has done this, people roll up their sleeves and shout, let us start rebuilding. Amazing, incredible. And as a church, we have a story to tell story the tell of how God has been and is leading us to relocate and refurbish. And as we tell our story, hopefully we can inspire and we can encourage others to join in. Nehemiah knew that he needed to work with and alongside others as he pursued this God-given burden and God-given vision. And in trying to get others involved, his approach was brilliant. Total honesty, an invitation to participate, clear motivation, personal story. As I say, it's a brilliant model. Now, if the story stopped, and I'm almost finished, but if the story stopped there, even temporarily, it would be nice. It's never the way it works. It's never the way it pans out because whenever you get serious about God, whenever you get serious about God's name, his fame, his honor, whenever you become proactive about fulfilling his purposes, opposition's never too far away. And almost immediately, it rears its ugly head. And it threatens this brilliant opportunity. And back in verse 10, we encounter two disturbed and disturbing voices, Sanbalat and Tobiah. But here in verse 19, the opposition increases, and that's often the way it works. Geshem the Arab joins in. And although you could say, yes, opposition is inevitable, or in fact, opposition is a sign that you're doing something right, but you know something? It's still flipping annoying. Especially when it becomes vocal. And back in verse 10, as I say, Nehemiah knew some people weren't happy. But here in verse 19. As things progress, as he gets people on board, the opposition intensifies and the volume level increases. And it takes two forms. Personal ridicule. All three components we read scoff contemptuously. They voice off. They mock Nehemiah and the people. And not only public ridicule, but there's personal intimidation. What do you think you're doing, Nehemiah? Are you rebelling against the king? And you see, the effect of the intention behind these two things are these, embarrassment and fear. Because when you're ridiculed, you feel embarrassed. And when you're intimidated, you feel afraid. And when you think about it, those two forms of opposition have worked wonders for years in keeping Christians from doing and saying anything. Embarrassment and fear. And I've no doubt that Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem hoped that these two forms of opposition would work with Nehemiah. But they didn't. Nehemiah realized that with opportunity comes opposition. And so he wasn't distracted or immobilized by it, he confronts it head on and he immediately responds, God is on our side. So there, or words to that effect. This is God's work is what Nehemiah said. We are God's servant. And what he describes God as the God of heaven. And for those of you who've been tracking this series, you'll know that that's a term that means the powerful God, the all-powerful God. He will see this work through. You know, people will attempt to make life difficult for us as a church. They will. They'll ridicule us. They may intimidate us. But listen again to these infamous words of Jesus. God blesses you when people mock you. And persecute you, and lie about you, and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. You see, opposition in the Christian life and in ministry, and in doing a good work, is inevitable. And like Nehemiah, we need to live with it. We need to get on with it, and we need to keep it in perspective. And whatever we do, we must not allow the grape squad, the negative voices, or the enemy to deflect or distract us. I need to finish. There is a lot in that little section. But the key thing I want us to take is this. With opportunity comes opposition. So let me go back to the question I asked at the very start. How are we, how are you, going to cope with it? How are you going to handle it? And as we come together, let's be honest. Let's invite participation. Let's offer motivation. And let's share stories. Next week, we'll see what happens as the rebuilding starts. Heather. Let's finish this morning by